0: Good evening. Tonight we're continuing our study through 1 Samuel and we're continuing in chapter 2. Last week, remember, we looked at uh, Hannah's uh, prayer and Hannah's theology and we concluded that uh, what Hannah was trying to teach us through her prayer was God is more significant than people, number one. Secondly, God is more holy than people. Thirdly, God is the judge of people. And. Uh, Fourthly, God is the ruler of all people. And then the last point we looked at last week was God is the Savior of all people. And that was such an important conclusion to draw from our lesson last week. Well, this week we go back to chapter 2, picking up there in verse uh, 12, and we go back to Eli. And this passage presents us with a study really in comparisons or contrasts, you might say, as chapter 2 contrasts the, the life of Samuel with the life of Eli and his two sons. And you'll notice as we read through the the passage this evening that the focus keeps shifting back and forth between Samuel and Eli's sons. And this is an intentional comparison. And it's a very effective teaching tool to show the differences between the two characters. One of the greatest themes of Scripture is that God blesses the righteous, and He what? He judges the wicked. And we see this from the opening chapters of Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament narratives, through the Psalms, through the prophets, through the parables, through the teachings of Jesus, right up until the last judgment presented, even in the book of Revelation. And we find it right here in today's passage in 1 Samuel chapter 2. God blesses the righteous, and he judges the wicked. Now this passage in 1 Samuel 2 alternates back and forth between Samuel, as I said, and the sons of Eli. In some ways, they are similar, they are both brought up in Shiloh, they are both under Eli's supervision, they both serve at the tent of the meeting. But that is where, in all honesty, the similarities end. What we have here is a study in contrast between the righteous and the wicked. God's in the process of removing Eli and his wicked sons from the priesthood and raising up a faithful priest, one who will do according to what God's heart and mind desire. And the boy Samuel is essential to this time in the transition. So let's look at the differences between Samuel and the and Eli's sons in this passage. Now remember, there's no king at this time. Uh, they didn't know right from wrong, they claim. Uh, They didn't know God from sin. People were willfully blind. They wanted their own choice. And you stop and you have to ask the question, why would people want to be ignorant about God? Why would people desire to be ignorant, to live for themselves? It's a sad time. It's a very dark time. In Judges 11, you have uh, Jephthah, who actually thought it would be pleasing to God to sacrifice his own virgin daughter to Yahweh. They thought that somehow God would and could be satisfied with what would be concluded pagan practices. I'm recapping all this because in chapter 2, we see a very strong contrast between God and sin. What God's message for us is simply this. uh, Stop looking at evil and calling it good. And you'll see clearly between good and evil. Sinful service of God and service he delights in. That's That's the contrast. Unfold in the the place of worship in the high priest's household. His eyes were apparently clouded to this as well. You heard judgment begins with the house of the Lord. We've all heard that. Well, this is where judgment comes to the house of the Lord. God and his prophets show up and they call Eli to task. Well, let's read 1 Samuel chapter 2, beginning in verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or the kettle or the cauldron or the pot. And all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now. And if not... I will take it by force. Then the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Well, Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year. When she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice, Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of the meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and favor, with the Lord and also with men. And there came a man of God to Eli and said, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest and to go up to my altar to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwellings and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord, the God of Israel declares, I promised that the house and the house of your father should go in and out, before me forever but now the lord declares far be it from me for those who honor me i will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed behold the days are coming when i will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house so that there will not be an old man in your house then in distress you will look with envious eye upon all who all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on israel And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart and all his descendants. Of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this that shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be assigned to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. What a sad ending to the ministry of Eli and his sons. Uh, It's an incredible portion of Scripture here we we have before us. And they wanted basically nothing more than to live for themselves. Now, notice here, they weaned Samuels at three to four years of age. And the rest of his life he spent in the tabernacle ministering before the Lord. This was due to Hannah's oath before the Lord. So first of all here, we find a difference in their service. We find a difference in their service. Notice in verse 11 here that Elkanah went home to Ramah, but the boy ministered before the Lord under Eli the priest. Elkanah was Samuel's father. Uh, He and his wife Hannah had come to Shiloh to dedicate Samuel to the Lord's service in fulfillment of Hannah's vow. And now they returned to their home in Ramah, leaving Samuel in Eli's care. Well, notice that Samuel does not simply serve Eli, but the text says Samuel ministers before the Lord. That word minister in the verse is not the normal word for a servant serving a master. It's the word used for personal service to a person of high importance and was especially used of those serving the serving the Lord in the tabernacle or the temple. Now, Samuel's only three or four years of age here, maybe at the oldest seven, but he's already serving the Lord here in Shiloh. He'll become Eli's son, he'll become Eli's servant, eventually he will become the priest himself. Now, verse 12 says, now the sons of Eli were worthless men, they did not know the Lord. That that word, that phrase, worthless or wicked, in this uh, translation, it, it, it really corresponds to an interesting word in the Hebrew phrase, the sons of Belial. The word Belial literally means worthless. It's often used to describe wicked men. Hannah used the same word earlier when Eli accused her of being drunk in the temple. When she said, do not take your servant for a daughter of Belial or a a worthless woman. Do not take your servant for a wicked woman, the NIV translates it. The measure of worthlessness. Don't overlook the fact that this is how God finds value in a person. It depends upon what? Upon their knowledge of God. How much esteem God puts on a person is directly related to how much that person knows about God. The person who doesn't know the God of the Bible is living really a a vacant and empty life, a worthless life. Solomon defined life In the same way, steam that goes up and it's gone. James uses the term, life is like a vapor. Everything around is fleeting, it's temporary, it's transitory. They think that what is done on earth will last. That somehow all their toil, all their work is going to make an impact in the end. They think the object of their affections apart from the Lord is what will last. And that's really what defines them. The truth is, what gives a life meaning is the knowledge of the Lord. We know that to be true. What gives your life value is knowledge of God. The less you know about God, the less you will be able to glorify God. That's why we believe in the study of doctrine, in the study of theology. That's what theology is. It's the study of God. It cracks me up when I hear certain pastors in their... Modern-day churches say, well, we don't study theology. We don't study doctrine. That's boring to people Well, what do you do as a church? That's what theology is. It's the study of God And this is what verse 12 tells us that they were worthless. They didn't know God And if you don't know God guess what you can't glorify God and if you can't glorify God You're really wasting your life trying to serve him It doesn't have any value the more you know about God, the more you worship him, the more you value him, the more you esteem him. See, the only knowledge of the Lord, only knowledge of the Lord has eternal value. You will, be die, you will die one day and you'll be forgotten. It's over. Only knowledge of the Lord gives us worth, gives us that eternal value. Hebrews 12 tells us that God will come and will judge the earth. He will shake the earth. All the thoughts, treasures, everything that live on the earth will be abolished. Only that which is fixed on the Lord remains. Haggai chapter 2 says that the Lord will shake the earth and only that which is fixated on the Messiah endures God's judgment. See, this is completely counterintuitive to what goes on in our society every day. Everybody's trying to save the earth, save the world. We live in a world where they that think so much of their lives, yet they do not even know the Lord that created them. I heard a story of a police officer pulling over someone in Hollywood, a movie star, and uh, he always gets the same response when he gives, goes to give someone a ticket. They always say, don't you know who I am? And his response is always the same. It doesn't matter who you are. It matters only what color the light was when you went through it. See, no one is going to be able to look at the Lord that day, on that day of judgment, and say, Don't you know who I am? It's not going to matter. The only thing that will define you with the Lord is whether or not you know Him, whether or not you know His Son, whether or not you love Him. This is what Matthew tells us. This is what the Lord Himself told us while He was here. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, very sobering section of Scripture. Where Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never, what, knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I did these things, I did those things, and I even did them in your name, Lord. You know, we've heard of Phineas, Hophni and Phineas. Didn't I stand in your service, in your temple, running the tabernacle, doing all those sacrifices, doing all those prayers? And in spite of all that service, all that religious stuff that they did, at least in the eyes of the people, They didn't know the Lord. How sad is that? That's got to be the worst situation to be in, to be in ministry, serving God's people and not even know the Lord whom you think you're serving. Well, this is the first indication of what defines evil. It really is. Evil, you see it there in your outline, evil is marked by greed in verses 13 to 17. I mean, You know, the Old Testament law concerning the priest's portion of the sacrifice was very clear. It's told to us in Leviticus chapter 7, verse 29 to 34. This sacrifice was a fellowship offering. The priest received the breast and the right thigh. It tells us that clearly. If it was a Nazarite or other offering, the priest also received part of the shoulder. But instead of following god's direction and god's rules eli's sons did what they wanted they practiced what we might call the potluck method what they did is while the the meat was still being boiled as prescribed they took this giant three-pronged fork and stabbed the meat in the pot and then walked away with whatever came up i mean we don't find anything even resembling this method anywhere in scripture. And this is apparently what they were doing regularly, part of the regular practice at Shiloh. I mean the whole idea of sacrifice is people bring their sacrifice to the tabernacle and present it to the priest. This is what's supposed to go on as defined in Leviticus. The priest would then kill the animal, quarter the animal, take out the entrails, burn them and then burn off the fat as a sacrifice to the Lord. I mean, in the Old Testament, basically, the priest was a butcher, constantly slaughtering animals. Very graphic scene. And then there was a very defined piece of meat that the priest could take for himself to eat to support him and his family. The rest would either be burned to ashes or sent home with the worshipers to eat. That's how it was supposed to go. I mean, what a contrast with what you have going on with Eli's sons. And the Bible indicates that they were rather heavy set fellows. Life as a priest was very good to them, you might say. They benefited from it. They weren't sacrificing. They weren't suffering. They were taking advantage of of the people and their offerings. You have these two large guys with a giant three-pronged fork. Some people say, well, what's what's the significance? There's no significance, just the fact that they were greedy. They wanted more food. They were fishing out of the pot whatever they wanted. And in verses 15 to 17, it says, before the fat was burned, in other words, they took it by force. I mean, these guys, when you read this, You don't read this and say, boy, these gentlemen were very godly men. You see right through their priestly garments to the rotten, sinful core of their soul. They would have dressed the part. They would have looked like they were fit as priests to serve in the temple of God. Holy men from the outside. If you were to look at them, that's what you would see. But they were just greedy, sinful individuals, all in it for themselves. I mean, this is such arrogance, such presumptuousness on on the part of the sons of Eli. They were wicked sons. They had no regard for the Lord. They had no regard for God's people. And they definitely had no regard for God's offerings. Now, before we get too high and mighty in our own of criticizing Eli's son, perhaps we should stop and just take a look at ourselves. Do we ever treat the Lord's offering with contempt? What does that look like today? What does that mean? I mean, clearly we're not slaughtering animals here up on the altar. The Lord's offering is that which is offered to God. And it's that that rightly belongs to him. Well, how do we today treat the Lord's offering with, with contempt? What would that look like? There are several ways we do this today. We do it when we abuse or misuse the offerings of others in the church. We do it in our own giving when we withhold from God what is rightfully His. We do it when we partake of the Lord's Supper in a thoughtless or, you would say, careless manner. Uh, we do it when someone offers up their very best to God in praise and worship and we respond with a critical spirit. But there's another way that we treat the Lord's offering with contempt that far outweighs all these I've listed. Probably the ultimate way of treating the Lord's offering with contempt is when you reject Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. See, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of all the sacrifices and all the offerings in the Old Testament. He's the Lord's own offering for sin hebrews chapter 10 in verses 28 and 29 says anyone who has set aside the law of moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the son of god and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace to reject jesus is truly to treat the lord's offering with contempt Don't be fooled. I mean, there are people today in ministry who are in ministry for themselves. There are people today who are on the staffs of churches around the world who are paid by those churches who don't even know the Lord of the church in which they're serving. There are people in ministry who are simply in it for the paycheck. They don't care about the people. They take advantage of them. They don't have any love. Or concern for them, and you see that in the sons of Eli. And it starts from the top down. Remember when Eli accused Hannah when she was praying? He she accused he accused Aunt Hannah of being drunk. Now, Eli did repent over this, but not enough to take control of his own household. I mean, here's this distraught woman, and rather than console her and comfort her, he says, oh, what are you, you hitting the bottle? What are you, drunk? He's just calloused. And the tabernacle was supposed to be a place where God was a light to a sinful world. And instead, what happens? Darkness infects the light. Light and darkness are mixed. Does it sound familiar? This is what goes on today in our modern day churches. Most Churches today are filled probably with unbelievers. People who are more concerned in pleasing themselves than pleasing God. They didn't know God, but they served God. And all they did was plunder the people of God who were there. It's very possible, beloved, to do a lot of things and not be a Christian, a lot of good things. It's possible to grow up in a church, to work in a church, to memorize verses. To go to Bible study, to lead Bible studies, to have a profession of faith, even to be baptized. See, what makes a Christian is none of those things. What makes a Christian is the knowledge of the Lord, a love for Jesus Christ. That's it. There will be barren women outside who feel scorned by Yahweh, but you know what? They know the Lord. And there will be priests and pastors on the inside serving the Lord, paid by the Lord, who do not, who do not know him. But you know what? In the end, they're not going to get away with it. The Lord will rise up and judge all according to what? Their knowledge of Him. Let me ask you, do you know the Lord? Do you fear the Lord? Don't think for a moment that the Lord doesn't care how you live. Even as a Christian, with all your sins forgiven, He definitely cares. Don't be mistaken by that. Some people, rather than submit to God, they they try all their life to serve God, how they see fit in their own eyes. And at the end of the day, what are they di- they're doing? They're, they're serving, they're living for themselves. And see, unless a person repents of their sin and turns to Christ as Savior for their salvation, they are living for themselves. I mean, you can try to clean it up however you want. Live for others. Think of the good of mankind, live for love, try to do good to others, try to feed the homeless, do good deeds, live a joyful life. Under all that is the simple truth that they are refusing to bow to Christ and are still living in their own sinful desires. In the case of these two priests, it's greed. They wanted the money. They wanted the fat. It says that. That's really what our culture is today. They acted like priests. They talked like priests. But you know what? They didn't know God. They did not know God. They were in it for themselves. You know, it cleans up so nicely. Just try to love everyone and serve everyone. And, but you know what? Really, that's calling greed love. That's approving the very opposite of what God says. You may be able to convince all your friends... But at the end of the day, you will stand not before your friends, but you will stand before God. Listen, please understand, evil is marked by greed, desire to live for your own person. Evil is marked by the pursuit of the world, the flesh, the pride of eyes, the pride of the eyes, the boast of life. God calls that evil. In fact, he calls it worthless. The only way around that is to ask God, to forgive you, to spare you, to come to Christ. Well, next, there's a, a, if you look at the, the comparisons here, um, in verses 18 to 21, evil is marked by greed, 13 to 17, but in 18 to 21, we see that God is marked by what? Generosity. God is marked by generosity. It says, Samuel was ministering before the Lord. If you look at the the contrast between the priests, the evil sons of Eli, and Hannah, here's what you see. You see the priests as being disgraceful, but Hannah was serving at the Lord's pleasure. You see the priests that they didn't know God, but Hannah knew the Lord. You see the priests were in it for themselves, but Hannah was in it for the glory of God, and that's why Hannah's prayer is being answered. These two mighty priests were brought down, and a barren woman was elevated. See, God is marked by generosity. He's giving grace to those who ask for it. Remember, when we began, here's Hannah. She's empty, she's bitter, she's distraught. But what did she do? Did she just lie there in her misery? No, she took all those that distress and that emotional abuse that she was receiving, she took it all to the Lord. And the Lord met her right there and filled her with his grace. And she gave, as a result, Samuel back to the Lord. And he gave her even more children. This is typical Yahweh. This is what God does. No sacrifice has ever left one of God's servant servants impoverished no one has ever done something for the Lord and come away empty. We could all testify that tonight, to that tonight, I'm sure. The Lord constantly meets the needs of His people. No one ever met one of Eli's sons and went away full. But no one has ever left something for the Lord and went away empty. It's the complete opposite. So many people can't see that difference. So many people look at the biblical ethics and they call it unloving. But then they look at worldly ethics and they call that love. See, the Bible calls people to repent, to receive grace and mercy from a loving God and the world...